gonna hit record before sam ends up looking like i feel <laughs> Yeah, this is the next episode of Mentioned in Dispatches. I think we're on episode six. We're actually recording and releasing in order still. But the I think is we had to rearrange the sequence in which we were recording a couple of them uh, because of illnesses. And lo and behold, I have one of said illnesses. So uh, the beauty of having Chris Weave back with us again and also having Sam here is that I can just yell, Space Navy, go, and let the two of them do all the talks off. So with that, though, uh, let's let's do a slightly better introduction to this. So tonight we are going to talk a bit about sort of the hard sci fi elements of space combat, space Navy, some doctrine organization, some, you know, big questions, some small questions. Chris, among his many other things that he does, does the Saturday night stream over on the Starfleet Tactical YouTube channel. I I think it's much like Gary's counterclipping show. Chris, you sort of start with a theme and then it just sort of goes where it goes, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of what happens. It, it, it kind of depends. But sometimes uh, if we have guests on, we're a lot more focused. Um, okay. Or or if I'm just by myself, we're a lot more focused. Um, because if we're by myself, there's nobody to banter with. And so the banter doesn't end up taking things over. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, the, fir- the very first episode was me bef- before we even had it as a separate show. I got on with Alec Peters on a show called Trek Out. A- Trek after dark or whatever it was. And then we spent 90 minutes talking about Warhammer 40 K. So <laughs> we don't, we don't read our, our own, our own mission statement, yeah. you know, our own description. So to- totally get it. So Sam is well known to many Dragoons and fans of the Dragoons as, as sort of the four X dude. And he actually covers a bunch of the four X stuff for us with uh, he's, he's the primary four X contributor for Tuesday Newsday. And so if you're uh, if you're a fan of Tuesday Newsday and you see that four X section in there more often than not, that's Sam stuff coming through, but also a big sci-fi space game type dude that, uh, that digs a lot of those things. So, so Sam, I'm going to start with you and I'm going to throw a question out that Chris is going to end up rolling his eyes at and can't wait to answer. But um, <laughs> uh, so in the Star Trek universe, Right. Because I know you're a Trek fan. Starfleet. Is it a Navy? Is it the Coast Guard? Is it a benevolent East India trading company? Is it the Portuguese Cartographers Guild in space? Is it what What? what exactly do we have with Starfleet out there? How, how, how would you describe it? And then uh, and then we'll let Chris tell both of us all the reasons we're wrong. <sighs> I mean, we're going to start deep in nerddom here. We're, we're going to go straight for the jugular of, of geek levelness. So, well, it's if you think too hard, then I got to edit more. So, (laughs) when do I not think too hard? When do I not overthink things always? This is true. (laughs) This is true. And your girlfriend will back that up. Yes, very much so. Um, I know my, my, I think subconsciously I've always thought of Starfleet. Yes, it is. It is the Federation's primary defense agency, although it definitely also has exploration as one of its primary missions as well. That's the short, short answer. <laughs> if, as far as far as that goes, um, but I mean, Dude, it's a podcast answer as long as you want. Yeah, I mean, I mean, their vessels are armed and yeah. generally reasonably well so. Yeah, I mean, the Coast Guard is actually armed. I think yeah. staple guns count as offensive weapons, don't yeah. they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Um, yeah, look, you can you can dig deep into the nerd. Look, as soon as people heard us mention Star Trek, like they're either totally on board with the rest of this episode or they're already gone, right? So, right, right. Except Fred. Fred's got to finish the dog walk, so he's here no matter what. Well, and I, I think I know you know for I you know I grew up especially with Star Trek: The Next Generation and Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, which for me is a very close second in, in terms of my favorite Star Trek show. And Deep Space Nine focused heavily on the war with the Dominion. You saw a lot of fleet battles, a lot of combat, and I and I know that's kind of subtly in the back of my mind, kind of reinforced the idea of Starfleet being the, the Federation's primary defense organization. Yeah. Um. So yeah, effectively the Federation's navy for all intents and purposes. All right. Yeah. So, um, hey, Chris, all the reasons we're wrong here. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that you're wrong. I would say that, I mean, this is one of those fundamental questions, right? I, I've, I've often said that I think the most important question in Star Trek is what is the nature of Starfleet? Um, just in terms of, I mean, they've done entire movies about that. That The second JJ verse movie was all about trying to answer the question, what is the nature of Starfleet? Um, I would say that it's the Federation's Navy sometimes. Most of the time, it strikes me as being a lot more like the U.S. Coast Guard, in that the Coast Guard has a national defense mission, but it's not their only mission. And most of the time, it's not their primary mission. Um, they, I, I think they've sort of moved away from this nomenclature, but they used to talk about the five functions of the Coast Guard. And they were national defense if they had to, fisheries and environmental enforcement, safety at sea, navigation, and law enforcement. So they're cops in addition to being to being in the Navy. In fact, they have they come from an entirely different part of the U.S. code where their authorities are granted. And so that's the reason why if you've got a U.S. Navy doing counter drug operations, it's got a Coast Guard officer on board because he's got a badge. Navy yep. guys don't have a badge. And so, um, so I guess that's the, f- the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that eventually you get to the point where there's so many caveats and wherefores, et cetera, et cetera, that it, I sort of begin to think that maybe the right answer is not to try to fit it into any of those categories. And it's, it seems to me that, um, that it's made even worse by the fact that I would argue that, Star- that Starfleet has changed its mission over time. When you look at the, the, the attitudes and the missions of uh, Jonathan Archer on the one one hand and um, Captain Janeway on the other hand, you've got a wide variety of mission statements that are that are encompassed in that time period. I mean, remember that episode where the Makos come on board and you've got all these Starfleet officers saying, what is the military doing here? Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait a minute, Lieutenant Commander, I thought you guys were the military. Yeah. Well, now, part of that might just be going back to the older definition. It used to be that military very specifically meant army. Um, you get also the impression that that it, that it's more than that, though, that it had to do with the fact that that um, Starfleet sort of viewed itself as being more like NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, which has a huge exploration type content um, uh, content to their mission. Um, and now it's also got a very small officer corps. They run a handful of ships. They've only got like a hundred officers in the entire service. I mean, they make this, they make the Coast Guard look positively behemoth-like. Um, we actually had a NOAA officer that lived next door to us at Fort Sill back in the eighties. Yeah. In, 
and you know so He's i just like the it, one weather dude there on base you know <laughs> it was always fun because that's a great question you can ask like newly minted second lieutenants uh, name the seven uniform services and they you know i'll spot you the first five but they couldn't get the last two and it's like you know you you need to know this because you got to salute those guys if you run into them so okay brant you you were uh, you were in the army who's who's missing yeah you're 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 actually missing three chris because we now have the space force now it's eight but back back in the day it was seven so yeah you, so you got space force i gave was, you noah who's missing yeah there was noah and then i i don't remember the exact nomenclature but it's essentially the guys that work for the surgeon general yeah it's the public health service there you go so, I, I never remember the name of yeah, it. Yeah, the, the, surgeon, the surgeon general is a general, even yeah. though he wears an admiral's uniform. But yeah. he is a general, and there is a the public health service has a uniformed officer corps. They don't usually wear their uniforms. In fact, C. Everett Coop uh, created a lot of consternation because he said you had to wear your uniform on Friday, and they didn't like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they they do have uniforms and they they do rate salutes. Um, From my knowledge, the Surgeon General is the only public official to ever be included in the lyrics of a Guns N' Roses song. So <laughs> I've now just thoroughly derailed us there. Actually, while we're derailed, it's probably important for me to point out that under no circumstances whatsoever should anybody ever think that I am speaking for my employer. <laughs> You know, I, I wasn't going to go with that caveat this time because we're not even touching anything remotely professional on all of this, but I get it. You want to make sure the bases are covered. Yeah, I want to make sure the bases are covered. And it's also just a matter of, uh, you know, the deal I have, the deal I have with all my employers is they don't speak for me. I don't speak for them. And and the argument in case public affairs ever comes up and says, look, you haven't been clearing stuff with me is, is I've. I've stayed away from the third rail of what my day job is as as far away as I can. Now, I'm more than willing to talk about previous places I worked, but I don't speak for them either. But I will talk yeah. about them. I don't even mention my current employer on the air. Well, um, from my knowledge, you've never been in orbit around some alternate planet aboard a Starfleet vessel or any other Space Navy ship. So yeah. I think we're OK. <laughs> If I was, I probably couldn't talk about it. I did work for DIA, which was the UFO organization, remember? Yeah. yeah. So, in fact, I not only worked for DIA, there's a lot of papers that came out of DIA that talk about like the military utility of wormholes, et cetera. That was literally my office. Ah, So, so that, that, that brings up the interesting question of are the UFOs in the Coast Guard or are they in the Space Navy or are they the benevolent East India Trading Company or do we just not know yet? I I think most of you. My my opinion is that most of the things that, that, that have been reported are either radar reflectors or camera artifacts. Yeah. Because looking through an infrared camera is not like looking through just a regular... It, it, these aren't people looking outside, as a general rule, looking outside the cockpit. These are people that are using steerable instruments like FLIRs, forward-looking infrared. They're They're using things like that. And those things can lead to some very interesting effects. Like, for instance, if if something is stationary and you're moving above it fast and you're panning to, to, you know, it's it's locked onto the object, it looks like the object's moving really fast because your motion is making the object's background look like it's moving when in reality, it's just the changing angle of your camera. Yeah. So you can recreate all sorts of interesting effects in fact, Hollywood does shit like that 
all the time, except they do it on purpose. They're yeah. trained to know how to make all that stuff work and they do it on purpose. I think, you know, to some degree, what we're seeing are some some uh, uh, people that are not fully trained into all those different types of effects, accidentally recreating some of those effects. And and probably people, the outside observers seeing what they're looking for because they're looking for it. So yeah, so in some question, case, though, like in some cases, how, how do we. How do we tie UFO target acquisition back to a war game somewhere? Um, well, you know, XCOM does that, right? There's, a, there's, there's Terra Invicta, I think, maybe does that too, which is, I mentioned because it just came out. I'm actually hoping to have John Lumpkin come on my show. Uh, he's the head of, uh, uh, what's the name of the company? Paradox, maybe? Uh, Interactive? Yeah, yeah, Parallax. Uh, interactive yeah so so john john wrote a couple of science fiction novels back in the early aughts called uh through struggle of the stars and i can never remember the the name of the sequel uh they both had covers that were done by winchell chung um and you'll see that one of the technical consultants of it on it was me um and i was there because i spent a lot of time with the u.s navy um, and so I was sort of like, Hey, does this, does this make sense to you? Um, and so I gave him some feedback on some of the things that, uh, that I think he then, he, I think he, I think he made some changes based upon some of the suggestions I had made, which was, so which was good. You mentioned Terra Invicta and we've yeah. got one of the Dragoons is actually posting his AAR, um, okay. in the, in the forums as he's playing through it. Sam, I know you poked around with the news, keeping up with the news on that one. Some, um, have you got your hand on a build of it yet? to to play around some me no i have not so it's just geek so far yep just him yeah but we do for for folks that are curious what's this terra invicta thing you can go over to the forums and in our aar section um our, our buddy undercover geek is keeping up an aar for us and uh and kind of cycling through he's, he's pretty good about posting the screenshots and sort of explaining what's going on and uh it's uh it, it, it's a good narrative to follow now if he holds true to form, Geek's going to get two-thirds of the way through the game, and something's going to go wrong. Either he's going to get sick, there'll be a computer crash, they'll release an update that breaks the game and, and doesn't let him load his old save file. But but he's got a, he's got a consistent habit of getting two-thirds through the game, and something goes wrong. Um, it's just well, kind of a normal – and this has been for – 10 years now that this keeps happening to him so it's yeah. it's not a recent phenomenon <laughs> i think well, sam said the name correctly i i i got it wrong though it's pavonis interactive let me say that very clearly pavonis interactive i believe that's the, the name of the developer yeah yeah chris probably just pulled it up on screen because yeah you know, we're all I, sitting in front of computers and we're too lazy to hit google <laughs> well two of the three of you are too lazy to hit google yes well <laughs> This, this again, a recurring gag here on the on the podcast is that we ask a question and stumble for an answer instead of searching on the computer we are sitting in front of. When we were first hopping on here, a little bit of the pre-show banter. Sam, you mentioned you're a big fan of the Honorverse. Uh, Chris was, you know, I don't know that you were necessarily there at the beginning, but very shortly thereafter. Um, uh, f fairly, fairly distant thereafter. So, uh, okay. so, I, so I, I remember I bought the first Honorverse novel when it came out because I was a David Weber fan already. And uh, it was clear he was starting a new series. In fact, I think he said that. And I thought, I'll wait until he gets a few out. Um, and then next thing I know, there are 50 books in the series and a new one coming out every six weeks. And so um, I, I actually got pulled into doing Honorverse work, not because I was a big fan of Honor Harrington. I got pulled in because I had a job that uh, at the time I was a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. 
um, working, doing the faculty by day, student by night thing. Um, but before that, I'd worked for the Center for Naval Analysis, where I was the crazy guy you could get to go ride a ship on two weeks notice because I typed in my keywords into the Washington Post job database and up came this job at the Center for Naval Analysis. Now, that is the place I had wanted to work at 10 years previously when I was in grad school, but I had resigned myself to the fact I was going to be a computer geek. I had typed in my computer keywords. They were looking for somebody that could do some computer stuff on the side. I looked at it. I said, that looks like Peter Perla's wargaming team because it was all about wargaming. Um, I called up a friend of mine who worked there and read in the job description. He said, that looks like Peter Perla's wargaming team. Turned out it was. Spent six years working for Peter at the Center for Naval Analysis. So my main job was designing wargames for the United States Navy and a few other customers. And then as a collateral duty, I got to be the guy who goes and spends time on ships. But I mean, I literally just happened to be in the right place at the right time and knew some people who could say, yeah, this guy like really understands gaming stuff. Yeah. So that so that I got that lucky. was the experience you leveraged to get involved with some of the, the Honorverse stuff. Um, Sam, your initial entry into the Honorverse and, and sort of why you stuck around. How'd you end up there and, and what keeps you coming back? Um, <laughs> I was working at a collection agency of all places back in, goodness, this is going back around... Uh, Close to 15 years ago. And uh, for clarity, that's one five, not five zero. Correct. Yes. All yes. right. Just in case anybody's audio is fuzzing out on them on their head. One of the one of the head honchos who worked there, it somehow, it somehow came out that, well, actually, both both the both the owner and the, the guy who worked just under him was one of the one of the managers there are both are uh, both pretty big into uh, science fiction and Dungeons and Dragons and that and that whole bit. And uh the one um he said here one, one day came up to me here said i think you'd enjoy this and hands me his copy of on basilisk station by david weber and uh, and honestly the rest is kind of history that that that's what really started it right there um i was pretty quickly hooked and uh he borrowed me a couple more of the uh honorverse novels and then i started picking them up for myself and i've and i've been yeah like i said i've, I've been hooked ever since um, you, know, in, you know, enjoy the storyline. I, the, the, you know, the naval com, you know, the, the way that Weber, you know, created a system, uh, a model for naval combat in space where it was still possible to, you know, have quote unquote broadsides and we could, you know, cross the enemy's T and, and everything like that. Um, you know, I, I, I appreciated that. I, I, I enjoyed that kind of detail. Plus, the uniforms look really cool. Also, that, yes. So, so it was the Napoleonic Wars in space. Kind of, you know, how, how could I resist? Uh, for for a couple of years, HonorCon was actually here in Raleigh, almost walking distance to my house. Because I actually met up with Chris over there one time and, and at our previous home recorded a podcast at HonorCon with mm-hmm. Chris. And I think it was the dude in charge of HonorCon. Mm. Sat there and recorded an episode of that it was it was always fun to see the cosplay guys there because they were they were definitely into it and and for as much fun as we make of the square buttons guys around the napoleonic wars getting really anal about uniform accuracy they at least had a historical precedent to point to a couple of those dudes at HonorCon were getting really anal about uniform accuracy for something that was just completely made the hell up and 
Well, they had a little bit of Okay, good for you, but it was, it it did seem like there were probably more productive ways to spend your life. I mean, says the guy recording a podcast about, you know, Space Navy stuff on a Tuesday night. So, (laughs) yeah, there was, there was, there's, there are canon answers to the uniform questions in Honor Harrington um, because uh, David actually wanted to make sure that the the fan club didn't sort of run rampant. And so uh, he blessed Bu9 to be the official deciders about stuff like that. If there was anything that was too big a question, we'd go back to David. Um, but as a general rule, you know, Tom Pope at Bu9 made a lot of decisions about what was canon and what wasn't for uniforms. Um, but, uh, you know, we, it was very much about working with people. It was funny the first year that HonorCon was there, um, we didn't have the entire hotel. We didn't have the ballroom. The ballroom was taken up on Saturday night by a Marine Corps ball. And so you had on Saturday, you had Marines walking around in dress uniforms and Honor Harrington cosplayers walking around in dress uniforms. And the, the, the consistent joke was those Marine cosplayers are really, really good. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it was well, because you guys used to hold HonorCon this right around the time of the, the Marine Corps birthday. Yeah, when they do their big annual formal. Yeah. And so so it was it was a pretty good size of a pretty good size event. And there was a lot of interesting uh um, you know, a lot of interesting interactions that took place. The very first time we did HonorCon, first HonorCon was in 2013, and that one was actually run by BU9. After that, we turned it over to the fan club because BU9 just, we we didn't want our, we're a small enough organization that it would have been just too big a lift to do it on a yearly basis. So we turned it over to the fan club. But when we did the first one, we did it at this hotel uh, down in Greenville, South Carolina, that had this very, very interesting lobby that had this thing that looked like an exploding warp core. Uh, um, mm. I mean, it was literally like this 40 foot tall glass statue that was suspended in the atrium um, that over the bar. It was just fantastic. And so at one point we managed to, to get everybody who wasn't hotel staff and who wasn't in uniform to clear out of the lobby of the hotel so we could have some high quality photos taken from the balcony areas. Um, and, you know, I think they were I think they said this is what a spaceport concourse looks like. That was basically oh, sure. the idea. They were going to claim it was a spaceport concourse, um, but that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I got, so I got sucked into the universe first um, because I knew about Navy stuff and I was sort of plugged in with somebody who, who um, the guy who was doing the game set in the universe at the time, uh, Bu9 basically coalesced around a bunch of people that knew that guy. And he sort of pulled us all together. Um, and for years, I was a member of Bu9 and had not actually read the books yet. In fact, the joke is David would, we'd be at a meeting and David would be waxing eloquent. And he'd be saying, well, remember how blah, 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 blah. And I'd sort of, David would look the other way and I'd sort of mouth to Tom Pope, page 14. Because, <laughs> Because I had started reading and I got bogged down for some reason on page 14, just life, etc. got in the way. And it was only when I discovered that there were that there were legitimate audiobooks of it that I actually got went through the entire universe for a long, long time. I was I was doing support for something I hadn't read. Sure. So so you actually uh, my my membership of U9, I think, predates your your entry into the universe. But you you started reading the books earlier than I did. <laughs> Because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't actually get them read until like 2012. So, Chris, you mentioned some of the game aspects of the Honorverse. I, I know we've got some fans out there of 
the honor verse as a whole uh without you know going through every possible supplement and permutation in there mm-hmm. the the honor verse stuff is is much more it's more war game than rpg at this point is it not well there is an official rpg done by final sword productions and they also are the current holders of the license all the gaming licenses so they actually have the license for the uh, for the board game there's been two editions of the board game um they're based upon in a uh the first one's based on something called attack vector tactical um the second one is based upon squadron strike which is sort of a distillation of attack vector to make it easier to play but it's the board board game stuff that has a little larger share of the audience than the rpg for yeah yeah and and i think the the rpg needs i think the rpg it would be fair to say the rpg needs some work uh final sword's a relatively small company and i I, it would be fair to say it it, it needs some work um they they, but they i like the stuff they've done so far um they've they're also talking about redoing the game um and some uh some other people have expressed an interest in trying to do a game that final sword might produce like chris carlson has indicated that he might be interested in it and he'd he'd actually be a really good person to distill all that stuff down one of the problems with the current game is that it works it works reasonably well when you're talking about the battles in like on basilisk station the first couple of books um but you know the you start off with like one-on-ones and some relatively small battles and by the end you have you know a thousand ships or more on a side throwing a weber of missiles every minute um let's uh just pause for a half a second for folks that don't recognize the name right away. Chris Carlson is Larry Bond's co-conspirator over at the Admiralty Trilogy. They are the Harpoon guys. Most folks know Larry Bond's name, but they may not recognize Chris Carlson's name as one of the dudes that works with him and does stuff over there. Folks in the professional space, folks in the circles we run in are going to are going to know that but casual listeners of the podcast and, and some of the sci-fi geeks may not know who, who who chris carlson is so yeah and larry is a larry is a naval office a former naval officer who he was a surface warfare officer but he's a nice guy anyway um who uh then went off and decided to that he was going to write novels um and uh I, I've never really talked with him about the transition between naval officer and, and author. I need to I need to ask him next time I see him about that. There, Chris, there's a handful of those dudes that went from officer to author because John yeah. Antall's out there, Harold Coyle's out there. I mean, there's yep. you know, look, Tom, Tom Clancy's the famous writer in that genre, and he wasn't an actual. Author. Let's get back to blowing shit up in space. (laughs) What do you you want to know about blowing shit up in space? Well, Sam, what do you want to know about blowing shit up in space? (laughs) I mean, why is it that every Star Trek battle is like two guys that could almost throw trash at each other out a porthole when in fact these beam weapons and missile weapons could reach out beyond line of sight? No, I can answer that. It it looks better on TV. Yeah, so that you can have them both on the same screen. I mean, it really is. Um, uh, Roddenberry wanted to do that originally, but the the special effects technology in the 1960s did not really allow them to to do that. In fact, the the only time you ever in in the original series that you ever see more than one ship on the screen at a time, they're either relatively stationary or you see uh, some Federation ships in formation, but it's it's just a copy paste of the same image as they sort of tool around. You do not see anything that looks like maneuvering um, that has more. Than one ship in at a time um 
and uh, you certainly don't see them firing weapons. Um, then when you, they got to next gen, their camera equipment was better enough and their, you know, computerized equipment and all the rest, they could actually sort of do that stuff. And they, and they did. Um, I think it actually makes it, I hesitate to use the term realistic, but I would say it makes it less realistic because it, it made every battle to be something that was not just line of sight, but very close line of sight battles. Yeah. Um, you know, and the rain, the range, of those ships are moving. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the ranges that you see in a lot of those now, sometimes you have stern chases at warp and they're firing, you know, the ship in the back's firing torpedoes at them. But as a general rule, most of the battles with with Enterprise D are taking place at ranges that that Nelson would call long range, but Nelson would would understand the range involved. Right. It's not <laughs> like it's it's something that's so small away that you can so far away that you can only see it on the radar. Um, they're they're practically point blank and that's they'll they'll say that it's you know the range is at you know so many thousands of kilometers or miles away but but it's 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 they're basically dog fights yeah they're basically dog fights i've always been like that in deep space nine even even when the technology improved where they could show large scale fleet battles and they could have done it from further away but it was still pretty much a white at whites of your eyes range yeah, it really is. I, I kind of prefer how they did a lot of the stuff in Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, where a lot of those battles have, um, you see one ship firing, you see the other ship firing, uh, they cut to a scene on the bridge and they're looking at the radar display and you see the missiles sort of in, going past each other. Mm. And then you then you see ship uh, missiles, uh, point defense fire and missiles hitting on one side and point defense fire and missiles hitting on the other side. And you get the impression that, you know, I, I can't remember if they actually give numbers, but you get the impression that they're shooting from a couple of million miles away from each other uh, right. because they had they had ranges that were pretty, pretty good on that. Like um, uh, there's something that I talked about in Starfleet Tactical not too long ago. Um, if you look at the uh, the range of the guns on, say, the Iowa, the Iowa could shoot 20 nautical miles, uh, about 20 nautical miles. Um, and now, is it going to hit anything at 20 nautical miles? Is it really going to target at 20 nautical miles? Maybe, maybe not. But it could shoot about 20 nautical miles. 20 nautical miles, if you're going 20 knots, that's an hour. If you're going 30 knots, close to the top speed of the Iowa class, that's 40 minutes, right? So I fire my gun, I see a splash, or actually I don't at 20 miles because that's probably over the horizon, but you know, there's a splash and then it takes me at close to full speed, 40 minutes to get to where that splash is. That's not Star Trek. <laughs> that's not even close to the model that they use in Star Trek. And I'm not saying that the right answer is to file the serial numbers off and add in space on the end of a of a naval model. Um, what I'm saying is just that, you know, starships involve tremendous energies. I would expect that the, the I mean, those phasers can vaporize fairly good sized rocks. They can vaporize ships. I would expect their range to be greater than say a 32 pound cannon on, on Admiral Nelson's fleet at Trafalgar. Right. Well, and, and look, by the time the Iowa is chucking VW sized projectiles, 20 nautical miles away it's not aiming for pinpoint targets right it's it's not it's not trying to hit the pt boat that's taking evasive action it's aiming for the port you know that that that, 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 that has a sufficiently large footprint Uh, say again sam i said yeah that's probably a shore bombardment yeah yeah 
and, Fair enough. and and similarly, you know, the the Death Star didn't need to be a precision weapon, right? It, as long as you hit the planet, it was going to go boom, and that was okay. You you didn't need yep. much more precision than that. As the armchair dragoons march into the ninth season of their podcast, mentioned in dispatches, we need to make time to thank our Patreon supporters who pledged at the regimental patron level. So a heartfelt thanks to Patrick Garrity, Mike Quigley, Joseph Knoll, Hethwell Wargames, Robert, Kevin Bertram, Chet Bell, Treb Curry, Staggerwing, and Patrick Mullen for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and helping us to bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. You know, look, we, we've talked about Star Trek. We've talked a bunch of Honor Harrington. The other, there's a couple other big franchises out there. You mentioned Andromeda, which I don't necessarily think of as a big franchise, but but between some of the space battles you see in uh, in Star Wars, in Battlestar Galactica, in Babylon 5, um, it, first of all, Sam, any of them out there just look really cool on screen to you that you think, wow, that's awesome? I was going to say, I, I did like Battlestar Galactica. I like the space battles in that one. Um, it felt like a reason, like a, a reasonable compromise between spectacle and realism, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, realism in space battles is not something you're ever really going to see in anything on film. Yeah, it's on, like the guys that argue about the realism of, you know, invisible elves shooting arrows in dragons' mouths, right? I mean, this yeah you want it to be internally consistent but realism in this case is really sort of stretching the definition i i really prefer internally consistent and yep. as a as a way to describe it yeah yeah, same here. I think the uh, the dogfighting camera model that Star Wars used, especially back in the 70s when they were doing it, when they were trying to replicate those World War II dogfights, um, make for some some gripping movie magic. Um, that said, look, I mean, the, the, the best way to wargame those things out, um, you know, it, it's it's certainly not air war. Um, you know, it, it, it might be something like AVT or Squadron Strike. Uh, the, the, the big minis games that Fantasy Flight had put out with the, uh, with the Attack Wing games aren't yeah. a bad way to try and get some of those, those battles on the map. But Chris, back to your point, like those, just the size of the table itself, everybody's already within line of sight. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So when, when it comes to, so there, there's an awful lot to unpack there. I'll start with saying, um, Every now and then somebody says, I'm going to do Star Wars, but I'm going to use vector movement. And my response is, then you're not doing Star Wars, yeah. right? Um, you know, you need, you need to be honest to the genre. You need to be honest to the, to the specific universe. Um, Star Wars doesn't pretend to be anything other than sort of World War II in space uh, when it comes to fighter combat. And I'm totally and completely okay with just doing that. So I don't want to make it sound like, you know, a vector movement or nothing, because I, I certainly don't believe that at all. Um, likewise with, uh, with when you start talking about Star Trek stuff, when it's on the table, I'm willing to, uh, suspend my disbelief and just sort of say, okay, we've got a figure scale ground scale mismatch, which is normal in miniatures, right? It's never the case that your figure scale in your ground. It's yeah, it's pretty much unavoidable because otherwise everything, either everything gets played on a basketball court or everything ends up being, um, or the miniatures end up being one millimeter tall, or um, you end up with just, you know, nothing makes sense. Everything everything is, is a knife fight. And so I'm, I'm okay in my head with just sort of saying like, you know, 
Yeah, the, the, the miniature scale and the, and the ground scale are different, right? They're really a, a couple of thousand miles apart. Mm -hmm. I know people who do that on the screen too. They look at the screen and they say, that's not really how it is, et cetera. It's like, yeah, but there's, there's so much of the geometry on the screen, you know, as the ships move and their ability to like, like move around another ship, you see stuff like that happening that if they really were as far apart as people have in their head cannon, you can't make the geometries work in the same yeah. way that you can on a miniatures table. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, I'm a little bit less sanguine about that. But, you know, hey, one of the things I always say when I'm doing my show, my my standard caveats are, you know, I don't speak for my employer. Nothing I say should make you not enjoy something that you previously enjoyed. And finally, disbelief should be suspended, but not lynched. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's sort of a balancing act between that. But, you know, hey, if 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 you're if somebody wants to do something that and they enjoy it and they like it then that's great go do that um i never use star wars examples and when i'm sort of talking about how navies work or how you know any command and control or anything like that because i just find that there's too much stuff in Star Wars that just seems to be just made up without any consideration as to how things fit together. Um, in the which which one of the Star Wars movies was it? One of the one of the last trilogy that had the bombers. That was that was the second of the last trilogy. So that yeah, was eight. Yeah, episode the bombers eight. going over the dreadnought. That it was the the world. Yeah. that that one had the world's slowest bomber run and the world's slowest high speed chase. Yeah, and and so I just that that is. Is sort of indicative i just kind of i look at star wars you know i go to the star wars movies some of them i've enjoyed a great deal um i liked episode seven because it was the it was the closest i'd seen to episode four in a long long time um as a as a friend of mine put it i was 12 again um but i don't i don't analyze star wars because i think that way madness lies yes. um yeah. well and that's and that's true for most fictional some is worse than others some is worse than others um babylon 5 i mean i think uh the, um, I've, I've got the standard issues with babylon 5 about the combat seems to take to um, um it's too too close it's too up too up close and personal in a lot of instances but my main issue with babylon 5 is the complete and utter lack of tactics techniques and procedures and pre-planned responses um, the example i always use is the example where the alliance is about to go on the offensive i mean they're planning a battle it is a deliberate battle they're going to go to this place and they're going to kick some ass and they come out of hyperspace and sheridan starts bellowing orders like small ships cover big ships it's like isn't isn't that what they do? Yeah. You had to see the tactical situation before you could say, like, do your job. I mean, that's the sort of thing. So first of all, there's doctrine. So it should be that they're doing that stuff anyway. Second of all, David Weber handles it perfectly in the honorers. That same scene with Honor Harrington would be Honor looks at the display for about five seconds. Then she turns to her chief of staff and says, execute Alpha 4. Right. Because they've thought through all the different options. Yep. They've, they've got, got their decision tree in place. They've got their decision tree in place and it's execute alpha four. And that's what they did. Yeah. 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 I know. 
doesn't make for riveting TV, but it. Well, you know, I. But it should. I, I the way I look at it is, you know, I, I always on on questions like this, I go back to the competing examples of Michael Bay and Pearl Harbor and Ron Howard and Apollo thirteen. Right, Michael Bay felt that he had to punch up Pearl Harbor because he because Pearl Harbor wasn't dramatic enough just the attack of the Japanese on Pearl Harbor, right? Now, Ron Howard, on the other hand, Ron Howard took a well-known event with no bad guys, one tiny explosion, nobody died, everybody knows the outcome in advance. And you know, every time I watch Apollo 13, I'm worried about the heat shield every single time. So my message to Michael Bay is, if you can't make the the, um, attack on Pearl Harbor dramatic enough just by doing the attack on Pearl Harbor, maybe movie making isn't your calling. Yeah, but but every Michael Bay movie has that movie poster shot in it somewhere. Yeah, that, that's the screen grab that becomes the movie poster out in the lobby. Every one of them. One of the challenges, of course, is that, you know, coming into the battle and execute Alpha 4, like, what does that look like on the Wargame map? Like, one of the challenges that you run into with Wargaming is that the Wargamers are never bound by a particular doctrine unless you really straightjacket them with with particular rules to force them into it, which some Wargamers would argue doesn't leave them the creative space they need to really explore what could have happened in that battle. Now, I'm talking Wargamers broadly because space gaming, like, you're not worried about what could have happened in that battle um but but as you're as you're exploring that space how much of what kind of doctrinal constraints can you or should you put on fleet actions because again dogfighting is dogfighting right i got my three i got my three ships your three ships we're trying to shoot each other down we're just gonna you know sort of drive in circles and try and blow each other up i got it but but when you start getting fleet actions when you start getting eight capital ships on a side with all of their attendant support vehicles. Um, How does that play out? I've got a couple of answers to that. One is, I think there's a fundamental difference between gaming and uh, visual media in that regard, in that in the, in the gaming aspect there, you know, the doctrine you are, you, the player are the living embodiment of the doctrine, right? So it's all about what you're doing. You're the living embodiment of the doctrine. And and as, as Peter Perla says, the game takes place in the player's head. I don't know about you, but when I'm playing, I see little guys in those ships, you know, living and dying valiantly, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, people will say like, how could you care? It's just a little piece of cardboard. You know, I, I, I've had this argument with people that say like, this is why, this is why I have to pretend there's little guys on the ship and I can't pretend it's robots. And it's like, yeah, except it's not about the robot, right? If I'm playing Sam in a game, it's not about my piece of cardboard against his piece of cardboard. It's about me against Sam. Right. And so there's this, there's this level of you being the embodiment embodiment of the doctrine, you being the embodiment of everything that's taking place, that is, um, that makes it really different. The second thing I would say is ships um, in a game, just like ships in the real world, are designed with some ideas about what works and what doesn't, what you should do and what you shouldn't do, et cetera, et cetera. That is doctrine, right? So if you as a player can analyze what your ships are good at and what they're bad at. Presumably they're good at things because that's consistent with the doctrine. And then you do the things that may, that they're good for, 
right? That is creating and following your own doctrine while you're playing the game. And so from that standpoint, there is doctrine in games. You don't have to just do it like you would do a World War One Western Front game with the French stupidity rules that make the French do all the stupid stuff that the French did in real life. But you know that it's always it's always very frustrating when you're in that situation and you have to do stupid stuff because the rules make you do stupid stuff. The better one of the of those type of games are the ones where you are incentivized to do something stupid for the same reason that historically people were incentivized. Well, sort of the same reason, right? A lot of times people, there's a lot of things you can't do in war games and and players will say, why can't I do that? And the real answer is, it's a command and control or logistics thing that is being represented by just, you know, sort of like uh, uh, a rule that says what you can and can't do, because in the real world, they really couldn't do that. We haven't replicated the exact way that they can't do that in the game, because we don't want the rule book to be 150 pages long. Instead, we just tell you they can't do it. And please just press the I believe button and run with it. It's a well, and part of it also is that within the war game, particularly for known battles, you're, you have the, the benefit of historical hindsight. Yeah. Midway is the classic example. You didn't know how many Japanese carriers were out there. You didn't know if it was one force or a split force. You didn't know which direction they were. You had some ideas, but you still had to go find them. And and when you're playing the war game, you're looking for five carriers. And, and you know, the, the Japanese are looking for a set number. And, and because we have the historical hindsight, that's what you're looking for. So really the only way to start making that more, uh, you know, track closer to what they were dealing with historically is to change the number of ships there. And and now the Americans only have two carriers floating around, or maybe they have two and the third one's coming from a completely different place for whatever made up narrative you needed to do that. Um, Maybe the Japanese have six, maybe they've only got four. And so you waste a bunch of time flying around looking for a fifth one that's not even in the game. And and that's that's one of those challenges that you run into. And I've talked about this before on, on some fog of war discussions. A lot of the fog of war in a war game is gone as soon as you open the shrink wrap. Yeah. You know what pieces are in the box. You cannot add pieces to the box that were not in the box. So, you know, at Gettysburg, Jeb Stewart's dudes are never in a Gettysburg game, right? Or very rarely. They're occasionally there, uh, but but Jeb Stewart's guys never show up at Gettysburg because they don't bother to print counters for them. Even if you wanted to explore that space, most games don't give you the option. And and so you know, as 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 you're tootling around out in space out there trying to figure out what's going on, you know, the the those as much as anything really put you in a in a decision space of unknowingness, uncertainty. I'm making up words at this point, guys. I'm hopped up on cold medicine. I'm just going to invent vocabulary words. That's fine. Uh, but it, Sam, you you do plenty of 4x games and one of those x's is exploration like you don't know what's over the next horizon whether you need to shoot it or hug it or exploit it or what like part of that uncertainty you're never going to get in in a historical game or rarely it's hard to do right. talk, talk to us a little bit about that uncertainty and how you how you manage it how you deal with it you well basically keep your eyes open you kind of and sometimes you have to make decisions early on about to determine on how you're going to deal with you know potential threats a b and c um are you going to be yeah are you going to befriend them are you going to kill them are you going to buy them off to leave you the hell alone um and you know and in some cases you can put you know i believe put additional assets on the theater just to keep an eye on them for the time being um it's 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 all very situational 
in, in a lot of cases. And in some cases, yeah, but in some cases you have to make a decision early on what to do. And you might find out further down, a lot further down the road that that was maybe the wrong decision, but that's that's the that's one of the risks that you have to take. That's in one of those inherent aspects of the game of the genre are you one of those guys that takes his time poking around in the exploration and and you want to sort of consolidate and hold where you are before you start uncovering more of the map or are you one of those guys that like i want the whole map uncovered as fast as possible and i'll figure out how to settle it all later the second one the yeah. latter yeah i think a lot of folks that are big into forex gaming that that's the explore part of it is a big deal for them so they they want to get as many scouts and recons out there as possible and uncover as much of the map as they can and uh and yep. let's go see what's out there and, and i'll figure out how to exploit it later exactly yeah that level of uncertainty doesn't always exist in the tactical battle right. in a 4x game the way we were talking about it some uh in in that, that close combat uncertainty um and so chris i know we've had previous conversations and i think they even showed up partly on a podcast before one of those big pieces of uncertainty that you've done a lot of thinking about and and warning for the audience this is like third order geekness about to happen here. The tactically viable FTL drive. Let's let's totally bake Sam's noodle here. Um, <laughs> the idea that that you can jump around quicker than the eye can detect you, even in a tactical space, gives you a lot of tactical flexibility, particularly if you're inside your opponent's decision cycle. But it's the the physics make it really damn hard to do anything about. Yes. Yeah, in fact, um, this is one of the things I, I really love the Battlestar Galactica reboot. I, th I thought it was just fantastic all the way through. Um, there was a few places where it's like, why are they going down that path? And, you know, I wish the Cylons had a better plan than they did. Um, but the, the one thing that I th that I found most disappointing to me is that it seemed to me that they didn't they didn't talk about light speed lag at all. Um, and it, it's something that actually would have really made a big difference in all of that. I've often said that um, that I what I would like to have seen is sometime towards the end of the first season um, that uh, Colonel Ty says to Adama, Bill, I can't figure out why we're not dead. We should be dead by now. I can't figure out why we're not dead. And Adama says, yeah, I've been worried about that, too. We should be well, dead. He wasn't and dead because he was a Cylon. Well, yeah, but the reason why they should be dead is, and when I talk about light speed lag, so, you know, um, you can think of this in terms of information spheres, right? Um, if you are uh, three light minutes away from a target, you are seeing the light that they emitted or reflected three minutes ago, and they're doing the same with you. And so if, you're, if your way of getting from point A to point B is some sort of sublight drive where you're just sort of like, you know, moving through space, they will see you coming and you will see them as they get, as you get closer to them. And the entire time it's all happening, you know, the, the information is traveling at the speed of light and you're traveling at less than the speed of light. If you've got like a jump drive, that's uh, what I refer to as a tactically useful jump drive. Um, by that, I mean, you have a high degree of precision and control and can do short jumps and you can use it in a tactical situation. You're not just limited to using it to going from one star system to another. You can find yourself in a situation where you can, if I wasn't there and then all of a sudden I jump in three light minutes away from say Sam, I can see Sam what, what Sam was doing three light minutes ago or three minutes ago. Sam won't see me for three minutes, assuming speed of light sensors, right? 
Star Trek yeah. gets around all this by having faster than light sensors. Other people have faster than light sensors. But assuming speed of light sensors, I've got three minutes in which Sam doesn't know where I am and I know where at least he was. And if he's not moving around, I can go bushwhack it, right? If I've got a tactically useful FTL drive, I can jump right in on top of him. So I once was in a situation where um, where I was asked to, to help somebody do a game on this, right? Chris Klug... Um, who was the the designer of the James Bond role-playing game for West End, not West End, Victory Games, Victory Games back in the day, and who later did the Earth and Beyond massively uh, multiplayer online game, um, and who's now a professor at um, Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, Chris was working on, wanted to do a game, and he, uh, uh, my friend uh, Fred Kish, who is a friend of Chris's, put me in touch with him um, so that because he was looking for some references, some ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And I gave him a copy of the Exordium series by Let's Sherwood. Say hi to Fred real quick because he's out walking the dog while he's listening to us. He does this every week. Okay. We're hi, his Fred. dog walking soundtrack. So, hi, Fred. Evening, Fred. Hi, Fred. So, so, um, so I, I send the books off to, to Chris. And he comes back. And says, I really, I really want to. I really want to make these books. Well, it had in that universe. They have a tactically useful FTL drive, and they're doing things like doing time on target attacks, where one ship is firing, jumping, firing, jumping, firing, jumping, and so that that you end up with shots coming in from three different directions all at the same time. And they're doing, you know, they're bushwhacking other guys, et cetera. They're using a form of gun kata, uh, basically gun kata with starships. Um, if you, um, now I need to explain gun kata. Gun kata is something that shows up in a couple of the movies done by Kurt Wimmer, uh, specifically Ultraviolet, which starred Mila Jovanovich, um, which is sort of a more stylized version of it. He wasn't the director of that one, and that's not really the uh, authentic gun kata. The authentic gun kata is the Christian Bale movie Equilibrium, where he explains about how they've analyzed tens of thousands of gun battles, and the idea is that if you are a... a a well, um, well, if you're a good practitioner of gun kata, you can fire the gun at the, at the place where you think the guy should be. And you can start your shot either before you've looked in that direction or maybe even before the guys come out from behind the cover. The idea, the sort of the archetypal idea is that you don't bother to look. You just put a bullet down range because you know that a guy's probably going to pop out from around cover about the time you're pulling the trigger. (laughs) Sure. And if you're really good at this, you're taking in all the information from the outside world and you're predicting how to how this works in the Exordium series, the way it works is they've got very in-depth databases. They're analyzing the ships. They they know what software the ships are running as part of their tactical algorithms. It's all, it's a, it's like it's Ramius always turns to starboard at the bottom of the hour, turned up to the nth degree. And as a result, even though they've, they've got one faster than light missile that's called a skip missile, so think photon torpedo on steroids, um, but they've got speed of light sensors and they're jumping around and they're basically taking shots at places where they think a ship might be, even though the light hasn't yet reached them to tell them that there's actually a ship there. They're making predictions and firing on predicted locations 
not known locations. So I send these books off to Chris Klug. He gets really liquored up on them. He says, let's do this as the game I want to do. I say, dude, time out. This isn't this isn't just multi-blind on the and that the two sides can't see each other. This is multi-blind in that the individual ships on the same side don't know what each other's doing. And because you're jumping around inside in information uh, spheres of, of, of yourself and your, your colleagues and the enemy, right? You're going to see events out of order, right? If I'm five, if I'm, if I jump in five light minutes away and I hang out for a minute and then I jump in three light minutes away, you, the observer are going to see me jump in three light minutes away jump away and then I'll appear five light minutes away. You'll see it in the reverse order, even though, yeah, I, so we've got our cameras on. I can see the look on Sam's face. He's got that, where did I put my aspirin look on his face? No, yeah. Saying, yeah, there's no way you could run a game like that or, or, yeah, or there's, there's, it would be such a headache. And I totally and completely talked Chris out of out of designing that game, and then I figured <laughs> and then out you how decided to do, to do it. And then I figured out how to do it. Yeah. And so the key is to go back to you know borrowing language from SPI back in the 1970s. The key is to do it as in terms of design for effect instead of design for cause. And so the, a big inspiration in my thinking on this was the game Star Cruiser, which was the board game for uh, 2300 that GDW did back in the late 1980s um, for, for the 2300 universe. In Star Cruiser, it was really hard to hit stuff because essentially they had the exact same problem. So basically what I said is, it doesn't matter if we can see something on the map if I can't use that information, right? So how do I create that? situation. You start off with a situation where your two hit number is negative. And the only way you can get a positive two hit number is to have um, modifiers sufficient to get it up into to get your die roll high enough that you could actually hit something. And how do you do that? You do it by collecting information on the other guy. And so my game design partner, Arius Kaufman and I designed a game where that's how it worked. You had to make rolls to increase your information. So basically you do the dance with the other guy and it's like, okay, I can, it's an alpha class destroyer. He's running the such and such algorithms. Oh, it's Ramius. He always turns to starboard at the bottom of the hour. Now I got it. And so you start doing die rolls and you eventually get to the point where not only do you have a positive die roll, but you're getting information that allows you to plot. Basically, we did it with uh, pre-plotting and I get to see part of your move because I've got an information advantage on you. The game works beautifully it sort of fell by the wayside and i at some point i'm going to resurrect it and try to get it published um but we came up with a game that worked perfectly um avalon hills game attack sub uh was basically the ended up being the model because it's it's a card driven submarine game that essentially does the same thing. You roll to in, to increase your sonar contact level, and that allows you to do certain types of actions. Like you, I can only play this card if I have a contact level of three or greater, and so you roll to increase the contact level. So we figured out how to do all that and and made it work. And uh, good luck cutting this down to something that's a reasonable size, Brant. <laughs> It's not a problem. We can work with it. It, the, the entire idea of seeing stuff out of orders is as absolutely fascinating. The entire idea of information spheres, et cetera. And this is why I say that Battlestar Galactica, there should have been this conversation. Why aren't we dead yet, Bill? 
I'm, I'm worried about that because every time the Cylons jump in, they've got a tactically useful FTL drive in a way that the Colonials don't. You see like a sh- instances where a Cylon ship jumps in and then immediately jumps away. So they've got a very quick cycle time. And they're also, every one of them, it, you know, all the Raiders can all be reincarnated. So why isn't every Cylon ship a nuke weapon carrying suicide ship they can they can you know they can find the fleet oh they're five five light minutes away they haven't seen me yet I can have a nuclear weapon detonating on top of Galactica before Galactica even knows it's under attack and be a really short show if you did that well so see this is this is the reason why if you're going to say the Cylons have a plan you should know what the plan is in advance because to keep me up later tonight now <laughs> this this could be could have been the place where they go oh why aren't we dead something's going on here that we don't understand and what's going on is that the cylons have a plan yeah. and the 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 colonials understand they're not really trying to kill us something else is we don't know why they're not trying to kill us they killed all those other people why aren't they trying to kill us they're trying to make us think that they're trying to kill us. They're certainly trying to make our life miserable, but they're not actually trying to kill us. Why is yeah. that? Yeah. Sam, you were going to be up all night anyway. This just gives you something to think about. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, so that 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 could have been a lot of fun. So with all of that out there, Sam, what are your reactions besides sort of bleary-eyed wonder at, wait a minute, huh? <laughs> Well, it just makes me. I, I, I still, I still wish that we had that there was more games out there that had good tactical space combat, especially on a for, especially on a grand strategy level. I, you know, there's not, there's not enough of those. And 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 I say that both for computer games and board games. You know, there's yeah. there's just too few of those out there. I think it's a lot harder to do on a tabletop because of the, the 3D aspect of it. Yeah. Not impossible. Well, you know, even if you just do it, even on 2D, it's, it's, I think it's hard to pull up, pull, pull off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the problems you run into with, um, one of the things that I noticed a long time ago is that it always seemed to me that historical board war gamers were, uh, war game designers were way more willing to be, um, really innovative in their approaches than the science fiction war gamers were. And you, it's like, how could, how can that be right? The science fiction guys are just making shit up. Well, the thing is like Mark Herman does Pacific war, which has, I mean, that game is, it's brilliant. And I've told Mark that, but it's hard to wrap your head around individual pieces of it. Unless you sort of realize what he's trying to do, like submarines teleport home at the end of the turn. And it's because he just doesn't want you to have to spend the time doing it. Islands bid for range. Well, okay. That kind of makes sense because the, you don't know exactly where on the Island the guns are. So there's a lot of different um, places where the guns could be. And as a result, you don't really know where the guns are in the, in the, the same way that you would if you were seeing a ship. So having the island bid for range isn't as weird as it sounds, but it's got this weird telescoping time scale and all this other stuff. You never see anything like that in a science fiction game. And I think it's because you could never sell it to the players in a science fiction game or you'd have a hard time. Whereas with Pack War, you know, people go up to Mark and say, your game is broken. And he says, it reproduces World War II. Explain to me how my game is broken. I've got historical data that it says that it's not broken. 
You don't have that with a science fiction game. They're, the they're, other, they're suspending their, their disbelief already to a, a good degree. So Yeah, yeah. And so most science fiction games like don't play weird games with time, etc. Or or I mean it's things like Nebulous Fleet Command, they they do play some some time and distance scales things, but they're generally pretty consistent. They don't like have things telescope in and out and this and that and the other thing. And that's that's a computer game also. I mean, for board games, I mean you'd have things like Starfire that where you had multiple different turn tracks and at, at the top level, you're marking off increments of 30 seconds. And at the bottom level, it's years. <laughs> so you'd mark off 30 seconds until you got to five minutes and then the next counter would move forward one. And then when it got to the end of the track, you, you know, it was like 24 hours and the day marker would move forward one. And, you know, it was very, you know, there were times where you, it's like, okay, we're not doing tactical turns. You don't need to do all the the 30 second stuff. You just do the other stuff. But that is a very, very straightforward approach to the subject of how you represent time. Um, That is not the approach that Mark Herman chose. Mark Herman did this weird telescoping time scale, et cetera, et cetera. And you see stuff like that in in 70s and 80s board war games, and you never see anything like that in science fiction games, or at least I haven't. Maybe it's there somewhere and I just haven't discovered it. Well, you have the telescoping scale that you have for the uh, Gorkowski's recent game for Hollenspiel out in the Pacific. It's like World War One in the Pacific where you have three different maps of telescoping scales. Yeah, that I think would be a useful analog for a way you could do the mixture of interstellar combat, planetary system yep. combat, and ground combat. Um, could, could could very well be. I mean, and you you had things like um, Renegade Legion Prefect, which was yep. specifically designed so that you could invade a solar system and then generate games in the other in the other games. You could yeah. you could use it which, as a which basically turn. fixed the scaling problem that BattleTech had. Yeah, because because yeah, BattleTech was fine as long as you had you know ten mechs on a side just beating each other on a hex grid. But as soon as you scaled it up at all beyond that, it uh it got wonky in a hurry. Yeah, <laughs> ba- BattleTech is just a fascinating universe. I mean, on the one hand, it's giant stompy robots, so how serious can you take it? But on the other hand, oh my God, if you go back and you look through this stuff, and it's been this way for twenty years, you've got like the strategic strategic operations and this and that and they've i mean those guys have thought it through chris you're underselling them by 20 years it's been 40 years i say i'm no 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 no. high school battle tech has been 40 years it's been a but but they didn't do like like tie it in with all the strategic stuff and and etc etc until later in the process that was mid 80s chris that was when I was in high school. I'm I'm thinking more specific. They did they did Succession Wars. They did Battle Force, and then they did Succession Wars, and they started building it out. So so I guess I guess the question is what we're what we're arguing about is at what point is it does it stop just being the foundation and it start being the house? Yeah. Right? But. Yeah. But my point is in all of this is that they've they've gone through and they have consistently thought through all the different levels of war and have tied it all together in a system which admittedly has a few issues associated with giant stompy robots. Um, like in the, they, they will, they're, they're very upfront these days about saying like, look, it's a 1980s game. We're not including nanotech. We're not including, a, you know, it's like, yeah, they yeah. go down to planets to do their mining. They don't mine the asteroids. They don't do X. They don't do Y. We're never going to change that. It is what it is. It's giant stompy robots. But you know, within the framework of what they said, everything hangs together. Yeah. And I can't yeah. think of another 
game where the where the company involved has with has put that much effort into making it all hang together. 40k is bigger, yeah, but nothing in 40k makes the least amount of sense. No, no. Well, so <laughs> it's fun. Don't makes, don't get me don't get me no, wrong. No, no, I, I have where one of 40k my makes sense is if you treat it as a parody of World War II. Kinda, yeah, yeah. I mean, right, I at that point, you know, let's let's make it a parody of World War II. Suddenly, 40k makes sense. You're right that it's it's one of the most internally consistent, long-running franchises out there. It is certainly way ahead of uh, the the goat screw of inconsistency that became Traveler over the years. Um, and uh, you know the 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 2300 version of Traveler, I think, completely broke whatever consistency Traveler was going to have. Well, and, 20, and 2300 wasn't Traveler. 23 2300 was there. The, it was GW projected to the future. Yeah, and GDW was trying to trying to create a situation where Traveler was their generic term for for science fiction role playing game, and then they discovered that for some reason. When you name everything the same, people have a hard time keeping it straight. Yeah. And they yeah. they realize that maybe we shouldn't do that. And they backed out Traveler from it. Yeah. So but the it. point is they put the Traveler name on it. And that breaks a lot of the internal consistency of Traveler in a way that Battletech hasn't had happen forever. And, well, and probably the closest you're going to get is the, the Chaosium dudes with their Cthulhu stuff. Because over yeah. the years, they've expanded a lot of it. But Cthulhu, the Cthulhu mythos as built by the Chaosium dudes seems to stick together pretty well over the years. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a lot smaller though it is a lot smaller and, you know going back to going back to traveler 2300 my point is it wasn't really in the same universe as traveler yeah so yeah. still they it, put the name on it though yeah it's the equivalent of star trek and star wars being the same thing because they both start with star yeah <laughs> so. except that lucas didn't say oh i'm just gonna call this thing star trek and people yeah. think it's cool right yeah. it was now it, now the thing is the different versions of traveler there is there is a even you know let's leave 2300 out of it with just with the different versions of traveler there's there's a lot of inconsistencies and this this actually some of that happens from the second thing about about science fiction board wargaming and science fiction miniatures that you run into which is that people come in uh, the designers have an idea of how they think the world works and so they which is usually taking a naval metaphor like surface combat in space and filing off the serial numbers and adding in space in space onto the end of it and then they and then they publish a game that way and then it goes out into the real world and the players mini maxim and they, and they just and they discover their universe is all broken yeah because it's yeah. filled with ships that that nobody should ever have built yeah <laughs> you, see, you yeah. did see that in BattleTech. Like the base set came with Phoenix Hawks and Shadow Hawks. Anybody ever play Phoenix Hawks and Shadow Hawks? Do you ever see anybody say that's what I want to play? Once they had the big, the big no. Once, once you got a Warhammer available to you, yeah, yeah, because because they're just they're just they're kind of milk toast and they're they're just not really that good at anything and they're they so I would I would always customize my own mechs and load them up on as many SRMs as I possibly could because. Because even at long range, an SRM was going to score a minimum of two hits no matter what. So as yeah. long as I got close enough, I could just unload every single SRM volley that I had. I I knew I had a guaranteed minimum number of X hits. And then anything above that was gravy. So yeah. depending on what I was attacking, because the SRMs were were always a minimum number of hits, you could, you could just close and unleash. And that was... That was game over for the other guy. It, it was 
it was completely gaming the system. There was no way somebody should have been able to do that. But it was it was a system you could game to a, a large degree. My buddy Arius, once they came out with the design rules, discovered that one of the most effective weapons in the game was a one-ton suicide helicopter. <laughs> He'd build these one-ton helicopters and just they were dirt cheap and they yeah. just ram into stuff and it's like what the hell yeah all right we're gonna wrap this up for the night because i got a cold and i'm losing my voice so yeah. um and and sam needs to go think on tactically viable ftl drives for the rest of the evening ruminate on that i'll yeah, get an so, email from him at 5 a.m damn it i was up all night thinking about this so, so can i pitch my show pitch the show chris i mentioned <laughs> it earlier pitch the show you did, you did you did but let me make sure that everybody knows how to get it it's so. linked in the description people are going to get to it so starfleet tactical we don't limit ourselves to just star trek um, um, it's on the Aries Studio channel and the Axonar channel on YouTube, 10 o'clock on Saturday nights. Um, we're, we're kind of in the process of revamping it to have an ex- external, um, to have a, like a separate Starfleet tactical channel that will be like the archive editions of, of the show. Um, it's, uh, I'm on every time, uh, Pat Doyle, uh, is on frequently. In fact, uh, I would have invited him to join us tonight, except he's currently on an airplane flying to Norway for Naval Reserve stuff um and uh alec peters is frequently on and other guests and stuff like that and i spend a lot of time talking about real world naval history and then running it through the science fiction converter to explain why it's relevant. So like if you want to hear why uh, Trent Hone's work on the development of naval surface fleet doctrine in the interwar period, how that ties into science fiction, I'm the guy who can tell you how to do that. Um, that's episode 81, by the way. We're currently about to do episode 90, not this coming Saturday, but the Saturday after. So please drop in and join us. Brant, you're on mute. All right, Sam, final thoughts are yours, man. For me? Yeah, oh. you. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have nothing to, I don't think I have anything more profound to add if I, if, if I ever did in the first place. Dude, I, it's the podcast, man. How profound are we ever? <laughs> I mean, it's you know, game games with good tactical combat. Love to see it. We don't get enough of it, but acknowledging it's also hard to pull off. Yeah, and 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 unfortunately, a lot of them, in order to make a, an an appropriate to make them commercially viable, end up being attached to some sort of IP, which also means the toy factor is going to end up going up. Yeah, which is an unfortunate reality of the world in which we live, but that's just sort of where we are these days. Yeah, and it, and at some point it just goes away, like what happened with the Battlestar Galactica game. I yeah. mean, literally, it's just like one day they woke up and said, "You know what? We're we're gonna." We're going to make them cancel the game. Yeah. Okay. Well, and in part because there was a reboot coming and they wanted to completely redo all of the IP licensing and they didn't want the game out there for the old show when they had a new show on the way. Yeah. So, by the way, that new show is still not is still on the way. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, don't remind me. All right, audience. Thank you for joining us for mentioning dispatches. This this slightly disjointed romp around space gaming and and hard sci-fi in general. Uh, we hope this kept you entertained at least, and that uh, Fred's dog had a good long walk. And and we are still coming back later this season with uh, we got an episode on gaming accessories coming up. We've got this is the fall, so we're gonna have the Compass Catalog episode. We're gonna have the Charlie's episode because uh, we can't help ourselves. We're gonna have to do those. And and so we've got a couple other things coming up, but. 
but we also want listener suggestions. So drop a comment in the post, you know, below this this episode down on the uh, the post here, or hit us up on Twitter. Uh, it's a dragoons on Twitter, or go hit us up over on uh, over in our forums uh, or our Facebook page. Like we've got a Facebook page. It's basically retrans for the uh, for the the main site. But but hit us up on the forums. The best place to find us. Uh, give us your suggestions. What would you like to hear us talk about? Who would you like to hear us talk to? What would you like for us to to drag into the conversation? We don't tend to do a lot of deep dives into individual games unless we've got the designers on here promoting them. So if there's a designer you would like to hear talk about a particular game, get, give us some hints. We did set aside a couple of episodes this season specifically for listener-suggested episodes. So we want your suggestions and, and throw those at us and, and let us know what they are. And we'll catch everybody next time on another episode of Mentioned in Dispatches.